Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the show. My name is Scott Wiley, and you're listening to the Action Addicts Podcast. First things first, this sounds terrible. I know it. You know it. There's a simple reason for that. I am not here. I am somewhere else. And I forgot to record the intros and outros that I needed to record beforehand, so I'm going to make this as quick as humanly possible so you can get to the good bit. Joining me today, we have Matt from the Film Feast podcast, and the old me will introduce him. We are talking about Die Hard, a Christmas classic. I hope that you guys have had a fantastic Christmas and are going to have a happy new year. And with that said, I'm going to hand you over to me so we can stop listening to my phone. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're here live in the room, and as I will have hopefully said in the intro, because sometimes I forget, I'll be honest, it happens, uh, um, we are here with somebody new, not new to the world of podcasting, just new to this show. Please welcome Matthew from the Film Feast podcast. How are you doing, Matthew? And would you like to tell the audience a bit about your show? Though I imagine they're familiar with it at this point. Uh, well, you never know. Uh, so, <laughs> Yes, Scott, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, yes, uh, I host a podcast called, uh, Film Feast, uh, new episodes usually drop every Monday if I'm on time and, uh, we talk about anything and everything on that show. I don't really have, uh, a set, uh, genre or time period I cover. It's all over the place. Um, just whatever I feel like talking about and every week, like just a new movie, uh, great guests. Uh, lots of great people I've got to talk to on that show because I just love talking about movies. So yeah, it's 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 kind of how I watch movies is very random. That's kind of how the podcast is. Like one week you get a sad drama, the next week a '90s action movie, then a horror movie. It's all over the place, but that's how that's how I like it. So yeah, I think in some ways that's the best way to be. Although I might do an action film podcast because they're definitely a genre that i love and enjoy uh you know i watch all sorts of other stuff and i think some people find that really weird when i'm like yeah i watch sci-fi and i watch really slow dramas and they're like really but stuff doesn't blow up and i'm like yeah i know (laughs) (laughs) you're you're a man of many tastes i understand It's like uh, for for at the time of recording, it's st- I'm still late to the party, but I just started watching The Devil's Hour, and I've uh, watched the first two episodes with my wife, and I really like it so far. It's confusing. It's a mystery. I don't know what's going to happen. I know there's going to be barely any action in it because it's not that sort of show. But it's like I love it when films can be that sort of weird, complicated storyline, but still then suddenly feature a you know Matrix stroke John Wick's fight sequence it's like you can marry them both together i'm there man <laughs> yeah i'm all about that like mixing genres and all kinds of things just keep me on my toes uh i know i like a little bit of everything so that's i uh, you know i like movies that mash up genres and i like talking about all kinds of movies so but i'm excited to talk some action with you because i do i've been enjoying your show we're talking about before we started recording about 
um, catching up on your show. And I mean, it does almost seem easier to me when someone has like a niche. It's like, okay, I'm going to talk about an action movie this week. I at least know that. Like my show, sometimes I'm just like winging it. I'm like, I don't know for this week. <laughs> like I'm just making it up as I go along. <laughs> uh, to be honest, I pretty much make it up as I go along. I think that confuses people <laughs> sometimes because um, I didn't. Well, when when we were originally talking about you coming on, which was a while ago because of my issues uh, that have happened around the show. And, uh, you know, we were trying to pick a film. I have this conversation with new people quite often where it's like, oh, what what films have you got like in the pipeline? And I'm like, I don't. I <laughs> I, I have plenty of films to, that you could pick from if you want ideas or I'm welcome to hear like what you really enjoy, as long as it's not what I've already done. But uh, yeah, a lot of people seem to assume that I have like a list and I'm working my way through it. I do, but but it's the list of things that I've agreed with other people. So I, I genuinely just make it up as I go along. I don't think anybody's noticed. I, I hadn't noticed. You're doing a good job. So, good but <laughs> the film we did eventually settle on. And if my editing is accurate and complete and I'm on time, much like Matthew, this should be coming out at the right time of year to enjoy Die Hard. And uh, it's the original Die Hard, not the many, many sequels that exist for it. Which I was very happy to find, at least in the UK, uh, all of them are on Disney+. Plus. So even though I really didn't need to, I did rewatch the film for this show. I could have definitely done it without a rewatch, but it doesn't take much to convince me to rewatch Die Hard. <laughs> That's exactly how I was, actually. I Over the weekend before we were doing this, I was like debating to myself, I was like, do I need to rewatch Die Hard? And I was like, I don't really need to, but I want to rewatch Die Hard because <laughs> uh, I love Die Hard. It's it's got to be one of my most rewatched like movies of all time. Like I was watching again this time, and I was like, man, I just saw this movie like the back of my hand. It's bananas. Like, um, so yeah. I mean, again, it's always a treat to watch Die Hard, but I could have. I was like, I could do this one from memory, but I was. I also still feel like I have to rewatch something before a podcast just to really feel like I've got uh all my all my thoughts collected on it and all that stuff but um yeah it's always a good time to watch die hard always <laughs> yeah and the thing is as well die hard is one of those films that even though i know what's gonna happen you know what the basics of the film is even some scenes are burned in my brain whenever i rewatch it i always end up doing the same thing which is that oh yeah this is as good as i think it is whereas some films when I rewatch them and, you know, it's happened a couple of times recently where you rewatch them and I think the memory was actually better than the film. Not in a like, oh, it's bad, but just, ah, uh, you know, it's not actually that unique. But whenever I rewatch Die Hard, I just end it and I'm like, ah, I want to watch the sequels now. <laughs> <laughs> I want to watch the sequels up to a certain point. And then I don't want to watch the sequels anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that, uh, yeah, I, I, I have a funny feeling I know where the cutoff point is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure most people probably could guess. But uh, but yeah, it's it really uh, it really is as good. It's like always as great as I remember it. It never lets me down. Thank God. I'll be so sad. I pretend to watch Die Hard. I sit down to watch it and I'm like, this isn't very good or anything. Or I, I, if I think it's like oh this is lesser than it usually is i'll be very sad but that day has not come yet so that's good so i also think and this this might be more of a me thing uh because as you quite rightly said i do watch a lot of action stuff for the show when i do go back and watch these big budget action films 
I think I appreciate them more now than I did the first time because I I hate this phrase a little bit. I not massively, but they don't really make them like this anymore. And before everybody starts telling me that they do, I'm talking about massive budget blockbuster pure action films. And this one is a little bit different because even in its day, it was kind of bucking trends a little bit. Because I think one of the reasons why Die Hard has stood the test of time and why it got popular is Bruce Willis, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone. He was not. He was a regular looking dude. He was not a man with a particular set of skills who would come after you. He was just a regular police dude from New York who ends up in a bad situation. And everything that happens as far-fetched as it might be because it's a film it's entertainment he doesn't suddenly turn into a one-man army killing machine and he panics pretty much through every gunfight until the end and i think people really relate to that and i think that still strikes a chord all these years later yes i'm glad you brought this up because i i mean i was thinking a lot of things watching this time but i was like man bruce willis is really one of the keys to what makes Die Hard so special because yeah he's not Schwarzenegger he's not Stallone um not even thought of as an action star this time because he's come off like that show Moonlighting where he's like a yep. a comedic guy I and... was literally just about to say clearly the guy from uh, Moonlighting was the right guy to hire and then you took the joke from me <laughs> oh I'm sorry I'm so sorry uh they he yeah I just love I was this time I was really, really focusing because you've seen it so many times, start focusing on different things and like how how beat up he gets and how he panics and doesn't always keep his cool. Um, and it's it's believable enough because he's he is a police officer, so he has some level of training. He's not just like a guy that works there, uh, a janitor or any kind of. He's, he has a little bit of training, so he has a little bit of wits about him. But he's still in way over his head because these are terrorists and they have all better guns than him, and you know they're well equipped and. And he panics and he gets hurt and he's not afraid to be vulnerable at, at certain points. Like you're basically saying like he's scared. I mean, you don't yeah. hear, you know, these other big action stars that they were scared. You know, it's like this is he's a very human character, which is what has always made Die Hard like it was one thing that made special. So, yeah, I just he's so good. at this. Well, I think a conversation that I wouldn't say it's uh, it's it's breaking ground by saying this i'm not about to give a hot take but <laughs> i would say if you well i say if it did happen but if you put bruce willis sylvester stallone arnold schwarzenegger in the same room i know which one is probably going to win an acting trophy you know mm. and uh <laughs> that's not a disparaging comment to the other two because i actually think especially stallone well actually no, and schwarzenegger to be honest they're both very underrated as actors they're they were in a lot of films that didn't ask much of them, but the handful of films that they have done where it was, they did. And I, I feel like something that I've noticed, especially recently with a lot of audiences, is they, I say they, uh, this is going to sound so disparaging and I don't mean it to, but unless it is given to them on a spoon, it gets missed. And I feel like uh, I've seen that a lot recently with like... Uh, storylines from series where they like fill in the gaps and people are like oh my god that's completely changed the character for me really because all of that was implied in the original film you just <laughs> clearly missed it and now mm -hmm. that they've like stated it for you 
obviously you're like oh my god i love this character now and i feel like it's the same with actors where if they don't have that film where they're just crying their eyes out in a corner somewhere they just assume they can't act you know right like it's a very a very narrow view of acting like if they don't do dramatic acting they're not a good actor you know it's like yeah uh but schwarzenegger i mean all these guys i can schwarzenegger's actually really he's got i mean i I'm a big fan of Last Action Hero. I talk about it all the time on my show. And he's he's so funny in that. Uh, Stallone can be a great actor. Like, I mean, just go look at the end of First Blood. Yeah. Um, but Bruce Willis is a guy that's like truly multi-talented guy. Like, can do action, can do comedy, can do drama. He can sing. Uh, he can play, you know, he's a musician. Um, he he's yeah he's got all these levels to and all these things he can do and i feel like he got to show his range way more than like sports and so like you were saying like yeah they didn't they were they were kind of boxed in but um but yeah i guess people kind of have this narrow view of acting if you're not doing like shakespeare or heavy drama like you can't you can't act i get you know it's it's weird like well i think for me the thing i've noticed and i think hmm. it gets said i think someone else said this recently um in a podcast i was listening to where it's like you just mentioned like the end of First Blood, but if you said Rambo to most people, the picture in their head is of a muscle-bound idiot running around the woods, going Whoa! They don't they don't think of First Blood, which was actually a much more serious, dramatic piece with a lot of things to say about society at the time. And it's the same for uh, Schwarzenegger. It's like, yeah, he's got films where he's a muscle-bound hero but whenever he tried to do anything different people didn't really know what to make of it because it's like that's not what they were there for people don't go to action films to see high art and there are action films that you can put in that category but by definition and default people won't recognize it as such and i feel like that's an issue that is still goes on to this day where it's like oh you know doing an action film is beneath a certain actor and then an an actor that's already big will do one and then suddenly oh no this action film's different because this has got you know on a random name out of my head this action film's got tom hardy in it so you know it's not it's not an action film it's a blockbuster you know <laughs> yeah yeah well it's it's kind of like the horror genre has that issue too when it's like they want to change it from a horror movie to a thriller when they want you know like award season attention suddenly it's not a horror movie anymore it's it's just a thriller now <laughs> you know it's yeah like, yeah they're they're scared to make like just a flat out action movie sometimes like it won't be taken seriously I guess you could say um it's so then they kind of try to add something or change it but um yeah I don't know it's weird people's view of, <laughs> of these things like um because I think I think like Die Hard is just a great movie all around like uh ten out of ten like forget I, you know I, the, people look down upon it because like oh it's just a big action movie it's like well it's like one of the best you could ever make i feel like and it spawned with more like this whole like subgenre of die hard in a blank you know like they yep. just like die hard on a bus die hard in a mall die hard in, in a, this place like just all these i that time i was like wow this really just spawned this whole subgenre of action movies that that I really love. I'm a sucker for any kind of like diehard riff, diehard in anything. And I'm like, I'm there. I'll be there for that. I don't care. I'm happy with it. So, so what you're saying is, is you're very happy that this wasn't a Frank Sinatra film. Oh my God. He's so funny. I thought to bring that up. You beat me to it this time. Yes. <laughs> I am so happy that didn't happen. I, yeah. You, 
you gotta tell people the story because I heard the story for the first time not too long ago. I think I watched something on Netflix that was like movies that made us or something, and they told the whole backstory, and I was like, "Wait, what? <laughs> like, what? how did this happen?" Um, and I don't remember all the details, so if you know all the details, please remind me. <laughs> I I know that the the details. What I cannot remember off the top of my head is the name of the other film. But for those that are wondering what the hell we're talking about. When they were originally making Die Hard, for those that don't know, Die Hard is actually based on a book. The book is one on a series, and the previous book was already turned into a film that starred Frank Sinatra back when he was a, a allegedly a movie star. Because of what was in his contract and because the, of the people that were making this film, they couldn't actually make this film until they had basically offered the lead role to Sinatra, who was significantly older by this point, and even if he wasn't, I still don't think he would have been the right person for the job, but even though they knew that he was wrong for the role in every way, contractually they had to offer it to him, and until he said no, uh, they couldn't actually get anyone else in the role. But thankfully, he was just like, no, and it wasn't an issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got, I got the details here for you. So, okay, uh, the book and the movie were called The Detective. Uh, very popular movie in 1968 with Sinatra. Nothing Lasts Forever is the name of the book that became Die Hard. So because of him being in The Detective, and when they wanted to make Nothing Lasts Forever as Die Hard, yeah, they had to come back to 70-year-old Frank Sinatra and say, uh, we have to offer you this. You want to be in it? And I think Frank Sinatra, the story was like, he's like, no, I don't want to run around a building and get, you know, fake shot at for however long like so you're good so thank god he was not like on some weird power trip or some crazy thing where he was like i can do it like because that would not be the same movie at all yeah um it's a good thing that it wasn't made today because i feel like it would have been a very different story <laughs> yeah yeah i uh i don't know that uh that's just such a crazy thing to me that it's like they have to go talk to frank sinatra and then like yeah, I just don't know how that would have gone, but it was almost a very different production. And then I know, I believe they had to kind of fight for Bruce Willis because people were like, he's this funny TV guy. Why is he going to be the lead of our action movie? And he wasn't right? a proven like movie star. Yeah. You know? and, yep. and, and that goes back to what we were saying about people. And it still happens. I know it still happens to this day, as I'm sure you do as well, where once you get known for one thing, that's all Hollywood wants you to do. You're never allowed to leave that box. Yeah, yeah. And back then, I think they were even worse about the moving between TV and movies, because it was like, if you're a TV guy, you do TV. Like, you know, it's like, you might be able to make the jump to movies, but like, people didn't really go back and forth as much. But now it's like, TV and movies, it's like, I didn't call an ad for a show, like a, oh god, what is it called? It's some like, Yellowstone prequel that has Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren and Timothy Dalton doing TV. And I'm like, these people would never have done TV, like, 20 years ago unless it was like some little funny guest spot like on a sitcom like i remember the big deal on shows back 20 years ago it's like oh my god brad pitt's gonna be on our our little sitcom because movie stars don't do this you know like well so people were, yeah it's it's funny too because even when bruce willis was a big established film star he then still did like a, a legendary guest spot on friends for several episodes and won a comedy award as a result yeah, I was thinking of Brad Pitt when I said when I was seeing our friends. When I yeah, said Brad yeah, Pitt, yeah. Like, 
they would they would get like that was a big deal though because my mom loved that show and they, they they would advertise it like crazy it's like we got bruce willis for you know episode can you believe it this movie star <laughs> like it felt like they were saying they're gracing us with our with their, our presence on tv you know um and now it's just so uh back and forth like between movies and tv and the stream i mean streaming changed that obviously um but it's just so that, i always found that interesting and now it's like oh yeah it's not looked down upon to like star on a tv show and then keep doing movies like you know well i think the, 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 the other yeah. aspect is that the the tv shows that well tv shows i say in quotation marks that have big Hollywood level actors that cost a fortune, they're doing massive TV shows that have a budget that almost equals that of any major film. Whereas TV right, shows yeah. 20, 30, 40 years ago were never going to match those budgets. That's true. That is, that's a good point. Yeah, that's that. It, it's changed a lot in like the 20 plus years. I'm sure streaming has a lot to do with that um, mm. about about budgets and all that. But you are you are right. That is a huge thing, too. It's like doesn't really feel as much of a step down really like between TV and movies as it used to. Well, I think as well, Schwarzenegger said, you know, when he's asked, you know, oh, why did it take, you know, 30 years to get you and Stallone in the same movie? You know, why didn't you make the Expendables in the eighties? And he gave the honest answer, which is that people tried, but no one could afford us both. You know, <laughs> it just wasn't yeah. feasible, you know? <laughs> That's true. The, all your budget's gone on, paying those two guys <laughs> like yeah um and, I, and yeah. I think as well like you said people have become much more open into what you do at least as an actor in terms of work because you know you're talking about film and television but there's a third member of that stigma and that's theater and the idea that uh theater people would be able to go into television or that television would just go into theater i mean they hate television and film equally because it's like, ah, oh, that, <laughs> that tripe that you do for the screens, that's not real acting. And I know that that was like, uh, Patrick Stewart suffered a lot of that when he went on Star Trek. His friends were like, why are you doing that silly television show about aliens? And it's like, nowadays, you know, people scour theaters looking for up and coming actors and television stars go and do plays and like film stars cough Hugh Jackman cough. We'll put on one man <laughs> shows all the time, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's all very uh, easier to move between all these different things now, which I think is a good thing. I think it's it kind of silly to have all these like, barriers up. Like if you do theater, you're a theater actor. If you do movies, you're a movie actor. You're on TV, you stay on TV. Um, now all those barriers, you know, they kind of broken down for the most part, which is definitely a good thing. But yeah, Bruce Willis was up against that for Die Hard. I don't, they probably were like, we don't know how it's going to go with this guy. He's untested, but I mean, it paid off because I was trying. I was like, I cannot imagine another person in this role. Or, I mean, I, I could imagine the movie with like Schwarzenegger Stallone, but it wouldn't be the same movie at no. all. You know, no, no, Just no, would no. Not... <laughs> It'd be completely different because um, I wouldn't even be I probably wouldn't be scared for those guys. I'm like, these guys will be fine. They can take these terrorists out by themselves. You know, <laughs> they only need a gun. Um, it's like, but Bruce, Will, you're constantly even now. If, Oh God! I don't dozens of times, and I'm still like, it's gonna be tough. I feel bad for him. He gets hurt. He has a glass in his feet, that kind of stuff. I'm like, ooh, I feel, you know, I feel, I feel for the guy because he seems so human. <laughs> well, exactly, and I, I think that's one of the other. I was gonna say the other magic, and then realized that's not a sentence. But one of the <laughs> other magical things about Die Hard that works so well is everything 
that happens makes sense and flows logically. And, you know, one of the smartest throwaway things at the very start of the film is, you know, oh, you, you struggle with flying, so you should take your shoes and socks off. And then the fact that he does that means he's got bare feet for the entire film, which immediately puts him at a disadvantage in almost everything he does. Because, you know, that ain't comfortable by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> and as you said, mm -hmm. eventually they take advantage of that with the glass. And it's all set up from that very first sentence in the airplane where you just don't even see the relevance of that. And there's lots of things like that throughout the film, like the iconic shot of him in an air vent and he lights and he, you know, lights the uh, lighter. And even I had forgotten that they they don't just go, oh, this light will only illuminate in the air shaft so we can have this scene where he, he says a funny line because it then pans around to, yeah, the bad guys saw the light and now know exactly where you are. <laughs> but it means that they, <laughs> you know, I feel like in some films, um, especially like modern ones, it would just he'd get in the shaft, say the funny line, it would cut, and then they'd be searching the air vents with no real explanation as to how they knew he was in the air vent, you know? Right, yeah. I, I'm glad you brought this up, because this time, again, watching it, and I've seen it so many times, I'm, I think I'm admiring that uh, script level and attention to detail level, it's so good, because like that was we, the guy on the airplane is like, oh, you don't like flying? Well, you know, when you get settled, take your shoes off, uh, do the thing with your toes on the carpet, which I have done after a long flight. I gotta tell you, I think it works. I think there's something to it. <laughs> like, I tried it once, and I was like, I think there's something to this. But that puts him, he's barefoot now. And Bruce Willis has a line, I don't know exactly when it happens. Oh, he blows up, when he like blows up like one of the floors, and all that glass shoots out, and uh, the asshole captain gets on, and it's like, we got people covered in glass down here. And Bruce Willis has a great thing about like, glass, who gives a fuck about glass? It's like, yeah. and then later it's like, well, you give a shit about glass because then your feet are all fucked up by glass. I've never thought of that before, but it's like a, almost a weird foreshadowing of like, who gives a shit about glass? Like, well, you're going to care about glass when it's in your bare feet. It's like all these little dominoes, like these line up and then fall over. It's like, it's just so well put together. It's like so clever with all these little details they put in. Mm. And I think that um, a big part of that comes from the director, John McTiernan. And you already mentioned one of his other films that I also love as well, and that's Last Action Hero. Um, but that guy has done so many classics. I mean, he does my all-time favorite Arnold film, Predator. He did Hunt for Red October. Uh, he came back for Die Hard with a Vengeance. He did 13th Warrior with Antonio Banderas. You know, he's just done so many things that I would say are almost flawless. Um, and it's just so weird to me that in reality, he's done so few films as a director, and you're just yeah. like, but you're really good at making them. <laughs> I'm looking at his IMDb now. I forgot. I knew it wasn't a lot. But twelve. He only has twelve directing credits. Um, and it, he's I I was watching Die Hard and thinking he's one of our best action directors ever because this and Predator and Last Action Hero and Die Hard with a Vengeance, just those four alone. Yeah, I'd be like. You're one of the best. And um, I've never seen 13 Warrior. I, I know it. I think it bombed when it came out. But now I feel like there's a push from people who like action fans. I feel like that we follow on action Twitter. I feel like who, who say it's sneakily a good movie. I don't know how you feel about it. If you've seen it, but I've I, um, never seen it. Yeah. So I had that film on DVD when it came out. I think I had it on VHS as well, just to clue you in on how long ago that was. <laughs> um, and I 
I've probably rewatched the Thirteenth Warrior as many times, if not more, than I've seen Die Hard. Oh wow, wow! <laughs> uh, that was one of my like favorite films when I it, well, it says it came out in nineteen ninety nine. So I would say between ninety nine and two thousand three, that film got a lot of rewatches because to me, it was completely different to the kind of action films I was used to. It was Antonio Banderas, who I loved anyway. And I pro at the time, I had no clue that I was watching a film that was done by the same person that did Die Hard, Die with a Vengeance, Last Action Hero, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, now, well, I'll say now, later, when I figured it out, I was like, why, does, why, why doesn't this film get the same love? Um, and the last film he directed, Basic, uh, that was like one of my uh, father's and grandfather's favorite films as well. And it's like the only film I, I haven't seen of his is Rollerball. And I didn't I haven't even heard of it until I saw it on his IMDb page. But all the others, it's like, I'm not saying they're all diehard, but he's got more diehards <laughs> than not. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, I, I somehow saw Rollerball a lot back when I was younger. I feel like it was an HBO over here a lot. Uh, oh, man, that makes it, me sad that you've it, never it, seen the 13th Warrior. but you've I've seen, seen Rollerball. Rollerball many times. Uh, and Rollerball is not good. I'll tell you that right now. I didn't think it was very good then. And I don't think it's going to hold up. I watch it now. Um, yeah, it's just not a very good movie. I don't know what happened to him on that movie, but it it's kind of a mess of a movie. I don't know he is like if he didn't have final cut or he lost control of it. I don't know. It's just such a mess. But um I'm gonna put part thirteen four in like my priority need to see list because it's already been on there for a while. And uh after you telling me that, I really need to see it as soon as possible. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, like I, I, I haven't watched it for a long time, so don't like go in expecting to see the 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 best thing since sliced bread, but I remember it really enjoying it and I'm very happy to see that it's taken a while, but my brothers and sisters that felt the same way are, are no longer <laughs> staying silent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say it's not it's not just you, because other people I know, um, you know, definitely I've enjoyed it. They're saying like, oh, it's underrated. I mean, I've gone beating that drum for Last Action Hero since I was a kid. So I get it. He's like, <laughs> it's like a movie where you find out it has all these fans, but it got trashed by critics when it came out. But then years later, you're like, oh, all these other people liked it. But we were probably too young or something. We didn't have a voice to. We didn't have social media to say that. Yeah. Do you know what's funny is The Last Action Hero is another film that I've loved since day one. And it took me years to even realize that it was hated. Like, I genuinely just assumed everybody liked it because most of my friends did, too. Um, and then. No idea. When, yeah. When, <laughs> when you find out that it's like really hated and you're like, but why? And then and then you get that. Oh, looking back, this was actually a pretty good film, maybe even ahead of its time. And you're going, nope. I liked it from day one. <laughs> you you I mean, just I, yeah, hadn't, yeah. you know, you would, in my opinion, you just looked at it, made a lot of assumptions about it. The lead actor, for some reason, didn't typically seem to get a lot of positive critical review. And I think people just made a lot of assumptions. Yeah, I mean, mostly it was critical. I know it didn't quite make that much money, but it came out right after Jurassic Park, which is terrible timing on its part to come out after you know jurassic park yeah. but it's like i i was six when i saw it so i you know but it, it rocked my world as a six-year-old but it was like arnold was also my hero at the time uh so i was in for anything and then but i it still holds up obviously i still love it i talk about it all the time but um yeah i had no idea what the critical reception was because i was six and then like years later i'm like wait people don't don't like this what the what the hell uh very very fascinating when you're in like, the bubble of being a kid and then you find out later it's like wait, people don't love this movie. <laughs> it's, 
<laughs> Interesting. <laughs> but yeah, uh, going back to Die Hard, I also have to mention, as sad as it is, that uh, Bruce Willis, although he is a very, very important part of this, uh, as much as John McTiernan was, I think everybody is going to agree when I say that the other big part of that is Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber. Oh my God! Yep, <laughs> the best, the best. <laughs> I, uh, I, I love his introductory shots because they almost film him like a horror creature. It's like you half expect it to suddenly turn into like the Lost Boys or something because <laughs> uh, everything, every one of his shots is in slow motion. He's got the the really expensive suit, the long coat. He's got the European uh, accents, or the German accents, but we'll say European. Um, <laughs> and uh, the light reflects off the pupils in his eyes in those early shots when he's first introduced. And he looks so uh, supernatural and creepy. And it's just like, yeah, I wouldn't argue with him if he suddenly waltzed in with a six foot tall blondes all carrying machine guns it's like yeah i'm i'm <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna just sit down <laughs> <laughs> this is a good a great example of mctiernan being an awesome director because the way he moves the camera in this movie is amazing and that uh alan rickman introduction shot is so cool because how the the sea of guys kind of parts and he comes out of it and it's like it's timed so well with how everybody moves and how the camera moves and how like it just hits with the score and how he comes out of it. You're like, well, that's the fucking main bad guy because that <laughs> that was a great introduction. And it's like them walking into the building. It's such a cool intro. I love that so much. But yeah, I didn't think about it being a horror kind of guy, but I, I could see it now. He has a, He's always had a little bit of a scariness to him, Alan Rick. <laughs> yes. Yes. A, a fact that he lamented because it meant he could never ever get cast as a, a leading man. He was always like, oh, we'd love you for the villain. He's like, yeah, but I want to be the hero. And it's like, but you're scary, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> you're too good at being a villain, Alan. I'm sorry. He is. He's too good at being a villain. It was like, and he said that he said another thing he said the blueprint for, I feel like not just these diehard in a blank movies, but there's so many like, I don't lack of a better term, like Euro trash type, vaguely European bad guys who kind of come out of diehard. Like everyone's trying to have their own Hans Gruber, you know, after diehard, like kind of a smart, slick villain. Um, he sets the blueprint for that. It's like that's how good it is. Yeah, he definitely uh, influenced it. Uh, I don't think there's, a, I don't think anyone can argue with that. I mean, he, I imagine that for a very long time he convinced people that they were listening to his real accent rather than it being, you know, a put-on accent. And the fact that in the same yeah. film he also manages to put on an American accent. Uh, just always makes me chuckle because it's just like uh, on a character level, it's impressive that Hans can do that and keep it up and improvise everything on the fly so quick. But as an actor, it's like he gets to show off two different accents in the same film and neither one is actually his. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. His, I will say as an American, I feel like I've always found his American accent a little weird. Um, and that may be the point. And maybe it's because I know he's doing an accent, but I've always found it a little odd. I don't know, <laughs> like not like it's bad, but it's just a little weird. Um, I I oh, think you know, some of my, it. I have a question for you. Oh, oh, go on. Go ahead. Sorry. No, sorry. I was just going to no, say. Go like, I, I I think some <laughs> of it is because you because I I agree. I think his American accent sounds a bit weird, but I think it's because <laughs> you've been hearing him speak with a German accent for yeah. so long that you can still kind of hear it when he's trying to sound American. 
And I, I, I wonder if that's intentional because it's a German guy trying to sound like an American rather than an actor getting a flawless performance. That's a, that's a good point. You might be honest on that. I think it is. Yeah. Hearing the, the accent and then him switching the accent. So I know, so I know it sounds a little off. And I think, yeah, like hit the performance of it. And, uh, I, a question that's bothered me for years about Die Hard. Maybe you clear this up. Maybe I've missed something all this time. Then when, when he runs into John McClane and is doing the American accent and Bruce Willis is questioning him and asks for his name and Bruce Willis can see the board of names on it and Alan Rickman gives the name Bill Clay. Does he, do you think he had that ready in case he got questioned? Cause how does he, like, was he prepared? Cause he's not facing the board. So I've always wondered how he had that name so yeah, just in his pocket. <laughs> at the beginning of the film, uh, when he comes in and he wants Takagi, he rattles everything off about Takagi's life, his family, his education. I am 90% confident that he could do that for everyone in the room. Cause I believe that that wow. is the level of preparedness that he is. Like he knows everyone. That's why it had to be John McClane to mess up his plans because he's like, but there shouldn't be anyone else here. Who is this person? Because clearly it's not someone that should be in the building because I know who should be in the building because I know everyone that works in this building. <laughs> That's, yeah, that, I think you're probably right, actually, because he's so prepared and probably knows, he's probably looked at that list of names of employees who should be there like dozens of times and is a smart guy and probably knows it. So he probably he probably was uh, ready with that one. So yeah, you're probably right. I just, it's one of those things always kind of, you know, got at me for years. I'm like, am I missing something? But I think your explanation makes a lot of sense. Well, I, I think the whole point of his character is he's the brains and Carl is there to be the brawn because, I you know, they kind of, in my opinion, they kind of established that in the opening shot. Everybody else has a big machine gun and he has his hands in his pockets and laughs. You know, he doesn't need a weapon. His weapon is his brain and the fact that everybody there does what they're told. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's true. He's Don't get me wrong. Yeah. He has a pistol, but you know what I mean. It's like he he is much happier to not use it. I mean, he he flat out says that to Takagi at the start. That's the first time you see him take out a gun is when he's threatening Takagi's life, and he flat out tells him, "I don't want to shoot you, but be under no illusions that I will." And sadly, we know that he does because Takagi doesn't want to give him the codes, which, in retrospect, seems like the wrong option. <laughs> right right it's like maybe we should just give him the codes and then it's funny because you find out it's like well we don't really need him anyway you know it's like it would have been easier but we can do it without but uh yeah i i always like hey you should just give him the codes man he knows it's a bunch of terrorists they're gonna kill you <laughs> so. well i think to be honest when i was younger i used to think that that was like the the right thing to do is not is not the right phrase but i understood why he didn't because it's like well you're gonna kill me anyway so I'm not going to betray the company. I'm not going to betray my colleagues by giving you the code. But then they flat out tell him that they can do it anyway. And then he even says, like, oh, even if I give you the code, you still can't get in because there are other fail safes. And he and Hans even says to him, well, then why does it matter if you give it to us? You don't have to die. And, I, and when I watched it this time, I was sort of going, yeah. You've you've just said it makes no difference. So why let why risk the fact that they will kill you? You know. Yeah, yeah. Because that point, it's like, well, you know, maybe maybe they will kill you. I mean, it's a slim possibility. But if you're saying all that, it's like just give them the codes. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm like, 
Especially as a, I think as a kid, I'm like, well, that's the honorable thing to do as an adult. I'm like, I oh, don't know, man, I don't want to get shot. So just take, just take the codes. <laughs> like, and they missed it. You know, they may still shoot me, but at least I'm like, well, you know what? Here, I don't want to die. <laughs> like, yeah, you I know, because truth yeah. be told, they had to kill him to establish the level of threat to freak Bruce Willis out. But also it served a, a secondary purpose that it accidentally promotes Holly Gennaro to the main command point for the rest of the hostages. And that obviously gives her something to do rather than just be a damsel in distress. That's true. That's true. So yeah, like one of the, again, something that leads to something else in the movie, like a logical, like this leads to this. And um, yeah, I, we can talk about, I mean, I, her too. She's, I think she's great in this and very kind of underrated because obviously she's not the, the star and doing all the cool Bruce Willis action stuff. But um, yeah, she's really, really good at this. I, I This movie is so perfectly cast down to like, you know, security guards downstairs. You know what I mean? It's like, I feel like everybody is someone doing a good job and they're memorable in their part, uh, no matter how small the part is. Yeah, no, I agree. The only person that <laughs> I always, not 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 did a bad job of, of, by any stretch of imagination, but we have just made a point of saying everybody is uh, European. They're, they're these massive, you know, stereotypical hulking bodybuilder types. They're, um, well-dressed and you know like you said they set the standard for euro trash but one of them is uh played by al leong and is very much an asian man and i love the way that he just appears randomly when the <laughs> when the siege starts i don't think you see him before then he has a, a shootout and then i don't think we see him again and i just i i really noticed it this time i always noticed it in general because it's like he doesn't really fit this European German group, but I guess they're all, you know, mercenaries at the end of the day, you know, but it doesn't really matter. But it always makes me chuckle that his character just kind of appears and disappears. <laughs> yeah, I. it's funny because I've never really questioned his place in the group, probably because like 80s or 90s action movies just had Al Lung in them. So it was yeah, like, exactly. It's like, like he just has to be there. It's an 80s, 90s action movie. Like, but. I, I I think yeah, because they're mercenaries, they just pick guys up. The other guy that always he did stand out was uh, Clarence uh, Gilliard, who sadly just passed away literally a few days ago. Um, yeah, I I, I saw like, that, and I uh, when I rewatched it, I was sort of like I'd forgotten that this was him. You know? Yeah, yeah. I I probably remember more as a kid from being on Walker Texas Ranger with Chuck Norris. <laughs> exactly. Like, well, that's Chuck that's the thing. Like I remember him so vividly as that character that. Even though I, I know this character, I hadn't, it doesn't equate in my mind that they're the same actor, you know? Right, right. Very different parts. It's like, yeah, it's like, I mean, yeah, he's there and he's their computer guy, hacker in the movie. And like, you know, he's like an odd man out from the rest of the group because he's American and um, it's just their computer guy. He's not there to really kill anybody either. He's just like, hey, you get through the locks, basically. Um, but you know, he's great, too, in his little part. He's like. I feel like he plays everyone kind of like plays with their lines, I feel like, in like fun ways, like memorable ways. Like, you know, he's like, he shoots, he scores, like, like nerdy computer hacker stuff. <laughs> like, you get so excited about getting through the locks. Like, um, yeah, I, so it's, I never really thought about the, the guys too much in the group of where they came from. I just figured Hans Gruber assembled like the best guys he could find, you know? <laughs> well, I think they do something very smart, which is that they don't tell you, you know, it's, it's, right, right. it's, they, they hint. A couple of things, uh, John McClane basically says that these guys are clearly all professionals because the equipment, the training, the coordination, and if he hadn't have been there to be a fly in the ointment, 
no one would have known. It, it would have gone exactly according to Hans's plan. And the fact that when the SWAT, I think it's the SWAT team, try to breach the building, they get obliterated, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, is kind of the, the, the proving point where it's like, there's only at that point, like seven of them, and they managed to hold off basically the entire LAPD's special unit. And not just anyone can do that, you know? That, yeah, that's a good point. Because, yeah, at that point, they're not even at full strength. And uh, and they can still stop those guys from getting in. Like, And that's just how I think also saying how like ill-prepared that LAPD was. I don't think FBI has shown up at that point. And, no, no, they haven't. Uh, yeah, and so it's like they're just not. This, they're, these guys are above them. and They're way more prepared and have better weapon have all the advantages they have the high ground they have probably better weapons <laughs> like like they're ready for anything so um and i do love i guess another time to mention somebody else who really might be like the sneaky mvp of the movie is reginald vell johnson is as al pal yeah uh, as his man on the outside because i love that the whole time he's just like tell him everything's a bad idea he's like don't do this he's like not get not a good idea he's like they know you're coming it's like um i love it's like <laughs> they're shooting outside he's like what are they shooting at? He's like, they're shooting out the lights. And then his captain's like, they shoot out the lights two seconds later. <laughs> like, he just knows. He's like, this is not going to go well, but no one will listen to him. It's like, um, but yeah, he's, I mean, yeah, he's fantastic. It's like the, uh, I know Bruce Willis is like his buddy on the outside, basically. But he's the one trying to tell him, like, don't do this. These guys know what they're doing. Don't fuck around. But they don't listen to him. It's like, then they pay for it. Yeah. And uh, the, it's funny you said his captain doesn't listen to him because i always think of him as a captain but he's actually the deputy chief of police which oh well. <laughs> yeah because i i always think of him as a captain in my brain and he's played by paul gleason who's played dozens upon dozens of detective captains officers he's he definitely gets typecast as a police dude but um he is just basically there to be the useless cop and then around about the time he realizes that he's wrong and he kind of needs to listen to powell is when the fbi shows up and then they just basically make all of his mistakes again but like to the nth degree because of course they do yeah but what <laughs> i i i do find it interesting re-watching it now because like you say when the swat team goes in and i'm going to call them a swat team i think that's what they were they don't I really so, say yeah. <laughs> yeah they they have that exchange between the deputy chief and that uh whoever it is that's commanding the swat team and they have that very gung-ho approach. You know, they, they want to immediately smash the doors in, get this over and done with because, you know, they're the LAPD and this will all be over before the news crew has time to actually even get set up, which obviously doesn't work. But it's so funny watching this in 2022 compared to some things that have actually happened in the real world and going, I don't think that's what would have actually happened personally now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, I don't know. And like, it's... Yeah, because they're running like the terrorist, the anti-terrorist like playbook at some point. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it would go down like this, but also normally I don't think you usually have like a guy like Bruce Willis on the inside who's like kind of also fucking stuff up for them yeah. on the inside. Yeah, because <laughs> so. that, that's the that's the one part of the film that I always laugh at because it's the only part that I think is uh, dead realistic, which is that. John McClane's getting the most work done, is saving people's lives, and is actually getting rid of the terrorists. But the second the deputy chief communicates with him, he tries to blame him for everything that's gone wrong. And mm -hmm. it's like, no, dude, he's the only one who's actually been useful, aside from Powell. And uh, you're just trying to shift blame onto him. The one thing that does make me chuckle 
is I want to know where the chief of police was during all of this. Is, is, is this not important enough to wake him up to get down there? <laughs> Could he be out of town for Christmas, possibly? Uh, yeah, that's a good call. That's a good call. Because otherwise, yeah, you're right. I don't know where the hell he would be. This is like the biggest event that could be happening in L.A. right now. And like, it seems like all the other police. Are so I got to imagine he's out of town. That's why the deputy chief showed up. He's like, well, I'm in charge for now. Yeah, yeah, that, that could be it. That could be it. And uh, obviously we have uh, uh, Devereaux White as Argyle, who doesn't get that many scenes, but the scenes here in are always gold. Oh my god, Argyle's the best. Uh, he gets so much good information. Like you, you learn so much about Bruce Willis's relationship uh, with his wife, like Bonnie Bedelia, right off the bat from Argyle questioning mm. him. You get so much in that little scene, and I love that it feels like this is. It feels to me, it feels natural. It's like this is how Argyle is. He's a talkative guy. At one point, he's like, "I used to drive a cab." People expect conversation, <laughs> but he gets he gets you so much information so quickly about what's going on with Bruce Willis, what's going on with Bonnie Bedelia. And is done in a funny little scene, but it gets you so much exposition done like right away in a funny, like interesting way. Yeah, yeah. He he is the exposition character that manages to be developed enough that you don't think of him as the exposition character. Yes, he, that's not that's <laughs> not why you remember him. And that's, I think, tricky for a lot of people. Um, there are definitely I think we've all seen those films where you know that these conversations and these characters purely exist to tell the audience the stuff they need to know and they couldn't think of any other way to tell us <laughs> you know <laughs> right right but he has like Argo has like a good personality and like seems like a real full-fledged character and it's funny like yeah sometimes people come in I wish I could think of a good example on top of my head but there's clearly times when, like someone just walks into a scene and just dumps exposition and then just is gone and it's like, well, that's clearly what their purpose was, was exposition machine. But uh, but Argyle comes back to play in the end anyway, too. So he helps out in the long run. <laughs> and and they also cut to him throughout the film to to show you what he's doing, what his reactions <laughs> are to certain things. And I also love the fact that, you know, he hears the state of affairs. He hears that John is not really, you know, doing that great. And I feel like especially these days with mental health awareness with trying to be kinder to everyone and treating people not quite so mean as perhaps we did once upon a time i love the fact that argyle is the one that sort of says you know i'm gonna go park in the in in the car park and you let me know if you're going to go home with holly and if you don't i'll come and uh pick you back up and i'll find you a hotel and if you do i'll bring your stuff in so you don't even have to worry about it and it's like you wouldn't get that in reality from pretty much anybody that realistically is doing that job, but you'd like to think you would. And I love the idea that those people are always out there, you know? That's a good point. Yeah, it's like the ideal version of, like, if you had a driver, how cool they would be and how nice they would be. Because, yeah, this time I was really thinking, too, I was like, man, our guy is so cool. And he's just so, he's so nice to Bruce Willis right away. I hope, yeah, like you just said, like, when he's like, hey, if it goes well, great, good luck. But if it doesn't, I'll be waiting for you. I was like, man, Argyle's a good dude. It's a good, just a good dude. <laughs> well, I think as well, like when I, you know, first watched this as a kid and when I rewatched this as, you know, teenager, young adult, I think John's situation, I, I understood it, but I don't think I truly understood the impact of it until now. And it's one of those things where being in a city that you don't know, reality, you don't particularly want to be there you haven't actually got anywhere to stay. Maybe you don't have the finances to even really do th think about this and you don't know anyone. 
having someone, even if they're maybe a bit annoying, to sort of just go, hey, dude, I know the area. And, you know, I, you know, you can trust me because I'm driving a limo, uh, which is a <laughs> funny statement in and of itself. But it's like, you know, we, we, we got, you, you know, I got you. It's like, you, you'll be fine. And it's like, that can make the difference between being in an, in an area that you don't know and don't understand and just getting really bitter and lost and thinking, well, I'm in an area I don't understand, but it'll be all right. <laughs> That's true. There is a level, like a level of uncertainty into what, uh, you know, John McClane's walking into. Like, and then especially, you know, he's traveled across the country. He has, I don't, he says they don't really know where they're at as a couple at that point. And then I, you can tell he's like really thrown for a loop when he punches her name in, but he's gone back to her maiden name. Yeah. And he's like, Jesus Christ. Like, so it's that level of like, I flew across the country. I don't know what I'm in for. I don't know how this is going to go. So, um, yeah, just having even Argyle to be like, Hey, man, I got you. It's like, it's nice. It's it's, it's like you're good. You're good, dude, Argo. You're good, dude. <laughs> and he's and he's funny comic relief throughout the whole movie, um, without being like obnoxious, annoying comic relief, which I always appreciate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think the fact that when they first meet, obviously, there's an <laughs> there's something else they set up, which I find hilarious. But obviously, you're introduced to Ellis as well, who for some people is their favorite character because he's so obnoxious, you just can't hate him. And then it's great when they shoot him. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, they have this moment where, you know, they're showing off her new life. Like she's living a completely different life than the one they lived in New York, I think is what they're saying, you know. And, uh, you know, she's got a Rolex as a reward for doing well because she's like amazing. And it's like very... Uh, sort of like uh, i don't want to use the word emasculating but it's not going to make him feel that great if uh he, he even says like i got six months of cases that i'm behind on and he sounds very stressed and then he comes and sees how his wife's doing and his wife is doing amazing which is great but that pretty much seals the deal that yeah she ain't coming back anytime soon it's like the ball's in my court and uh like you said then it's like well you already got rid of my last name so i guess i've wasted my trip haven't i and i love the fact that they go to start that argument and then it gets interrupted but the second she's out the room he's like why did i say that why mm -hmm. why did i just immediately start a fight 10 seconds after we get alone and i think everybody can relate to that on some level it's like you get pissed off you say something that you know is gonna irritate him and then you're like why did i do that i didn't didn't want to start a fight you know yeah, yeah, their their like conversation slash little bit of argument that they have right when he gets there, I feel like is so good, especially the older I get and the more the more I live and have relationships exactly. that that feels to me like a very genuine, like I'm really dropping in on an actual couple's like real life argument. I feel like it feels very real, uh, and and they both play it really well too. But I do like that she's even kind of he's like kind of feels weird, but she's pushing for him to come stay at the house. Like, you could tell she wants him there um, to give it a shot because she's like, I got a spare bedroom, you know, but like um, he's trying to go some, you know, it's like I think his old captain's house. And um, but I love that conversation because it does feel like just a real genuine conversation. He has that line, too. When he's talking to Argyle about um, where he Argyle is like he, he reads it pretty quick. He's like, you thought she was going to it wasn't going to go well. She was going to come crawling back to New York. Right. And Bruce Willis doesn't even answer. He's just kind of like, uh-huh. And then Argyle's like, uh-huh. Yeah, I knew it. It's like, so yep. it's like kind of messed up that Bruce Willis is like, I hope my wife fails and comes back home. But like, you know, I, it's, uh, 
he's in a weird spot. It's like, I don't think he wants to move out there. And yeah, it's like, it's kind of a shitty thing for him to think that it's like, I don't want my wife to do well at her job. So she'll come back home. But it's like, in a way you understand where he's coming from, even if it's messed up, if that, if that all makes sense, like it's not the greatest thing in the world, but it's like, that's just how he feels, you know? So, you know, people are complicated, that kind of thing. That's relationships. They're complicated. It's, you know, it's just like something that happens. So. I think as well that one of the things that they hint at in their argument that they don't actually finish is they have an argument about what makes their relationship, what their marriage should or shouldn't be. And I get the impression that the way Holly says a certain line that she's like, I know exactly what you want the marriage to be, what you think it should be. And it's like, John earns the money, John goes to work, Holly looks after the kids. Very uh, traditional, I think, is the way of saying it. And mm -hmm. the fact that she had a job, obviously, and it was a good job, and I imagine that he was very supportive of, but then, as he even says, good job turned into a great job. And it's like, even I can't argue that she should say, you know, no to it. So she said yes, but she has to move. And like you said, he he's not willing her to fail but it's like uh, if i move i lose the job that's paid for us for x amount of years and has been the one that supports us and now suddenly given that she's a director i imagine she earns significantly more than him in the back of his brain he's probably rationalized it as that's a lot of responsibility and uh if it goes wrong where does that leave us because i'll have moved and i won't have a job now and then when it mm -hmm. goes really well it's like Ah, well, <laughs> did I, you know, and I, and I think he kind of has that moment when um, he's talking to Powell and he's asking him to tell her that he's sorry and that he loves her and that he was an idiot. And I think he has that moment of going, did I really mean all that? Or was that just excuses because I didn't want to move? You know, was I just blaming Ollie for the fact that I couldn't be asked to, to go through with it all? You know, it's just too much effort. Mm hmm. And I like that yeah. because, you know, you don't get those moments in a lot of action films. You don't get, as you said, all of these things make him human. Not, no character in this film is perfect. I mean, like you said, Powell is such a likable character. But I'll bet there are a lot of people that would disagree with that when they find out the reason why he sits behind a desk all day. Yeah, I feel like I almost always forget about that story. And I'm like, ooh, it's not it has a messed up story. <laughs> it's like, um, I mean, you can tell he feels terrible about it, but it's mm. like that's become such a like especially a hot button issue with like the cops being negligent and, um, you know, shooting people who were unarmed or, you know, didn't need to be shot. And especially that he says it was a kid. It's like, oh, it's like, um, you know, it's just it's awful. And you feel bad for him because he seems like a, a good guy. But it's like you tell it's haunting him, obviously, because he said he hasn't you know, pulled his gun out since that happened and he feels like he can't pull his gun out um, because of what happened with him accidentally shooting this kid. But yeah, it's one of those things I almost, it's a really dark moment in what I think is otherwise a very fun action movie. I'm like, oh, right, that's the reason he's, you know, it's a big deal at the end when he does pull the gun out and you're like, oh, he, he, he managed to save uh, John McClane. He found, he found the will to save him. So, um, yeah, it's weird. I somehow always like kind of, my memory glosses over that reason <laughs> see it's funny because even as a kid i remember that um mm. like that's always stayed with me and i think from the word go i've kind of understood the difficulties of having that job and being like i'm glad i don't have it um 
because right, like yeah. <laughs> it, it's like he said you know it was dark and his toy gun looked real enough right up until it didn't but by then too late you know yeah yeah if i think i mean they made toy guns much more realistic even when i was a little kid which was after die hard because they were all it's like they stopped making them black at a certain point <laughs> they were like we probably shouldn't paint the toy guns black right yeah uh so it's uh, like you think about that you're like yeah i could see it but um but yeah just a sad backstory for him that um again kind of uh, the, the movie keeps paying things off where it's like oh i haven't pulled my gun out and since that happened and at the end he's the big hero he gets to the last big moment of the movie when he pulls his gun out and shoots uh carl i believe is that one yeah yes um, yeah because yeah. they, they they have that great conversation where john keeps saying you know the way you drove that car after they started shooting at you, I just assumed that you were a cop of the streets. And he's like, in my youth, man. And I love the fact that they, you know, when you were saying, like, he's the only one that really knows what he's doing. And it's like, he's benched himself, but clearly his actual instincts that made him a sergeant, made him maybe once upon a time, he was that guy. And it's like, he's it's still in him. He can't just turn it off. And that's why he only does desk work now, because whenever he is out and about he he sees all this stuff and i love how they set that up it's like he he knows what's happening five minutes before everybody else does but no one listens to him and when you hear that story it's kind of like is that why no one's listening to him you know is that why the deputy yeah. chiefs like why are you talking to me exactly you know mm -hmm. that's true that's true that's a good point it's i think he's lost a lot of his uh credibility with the other cops i guess and it's like that's probably the main reason so but you could tell he is smart and has good instincts and uh for the most part uh obviously but like he he knows what's going on he's like he's smarter than most other people right his, his deputy chief he's smarter than his deputy chief so um yeah it's it's just another there's this like there's all these different he's a he's a full fully fleshed out character who has a backstory and has all these things about him and these levels and um yeah, this is another great thing about this movie. It's like this side character has this full arc and all this stuff going on. Yeah, which I think you can say for nearly all the main characters. I mean, everybody is in a different place uh, at the end of the movie than when they start. Um, and I really like that. Uh, even like I said, even Argyle gets to be a, a little bit of a hero at the end. Um, yeah. yeah. The, the, the only thing I don't like um and and you just basically said it is powell kills carl at the end but i even made a note uh in my notes when i was rewatching the film it's like was he a zombie at this point because he'd already been killed <laughs> yeah and, i was and confused and, by that <laughs> and people have said to me you know oh well clearly he didn't actually die and it's like well yes i can see that's the idea but like he was hanging by his neck with a chain wrapped around it and he was like 12 feet off the ground with nothing to support him um yeah how Not close to anything <laughs> yeah i yeah this time i really thought about that more too i'm like okay how is he alive because he's like up on that chain he's not near anything the last time we see him like he's pretty high off the ground i can't see him grabbing for anything near him it's like he's kind of in the middle of the room hanging so i'm like it's clearly a movie thing i don't know if in that scene i almost feel like somebody thought they needed one last like little action beat and they were like ah he's alive it's, it make it make sense i don't know but it's it is weird because like he should by all accounts be very dead at that point 
yeah, I mean, like I said, I, it doesn't bother me. It's not like it's going to ruin the film. But whenever I watch it, uh, even as a, even as a kid, I remember going, oh, "He's not dead." And then when you rewatch it, you're like, "Hang on, how is he not dead?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not like somebody shoots him and they, you know, you maybe off camera or you, you know, something. It, like they really linger on him hanging too, and it's like. Yeah, and wow, he should be dead. Because <laughs> John kills him, then he goes up to the roof to rescue the civilians, and then when they show you the civilians coming back down, he's still there. Right? It's oh like, my god! Yeah. So he's there for. <laughs> it's not like he he could have like disappeared right after. He was there for a few minutes, and it's like, I, I don't know. Uh, like I said, we're, we're spending a lot of time on it, but it just it always sticks it's, out to me. It's just I it find is it funny. Interesting. It's hard. To, you gotta stretch your. Uh, just leave for that one. But I mean, it, the moment pays off with Pal. And uh, um, speaking of ending, though, it always makes me laugh every time when they come out, when John McClane comes out with uh, with his wife and and she, he sees Al Pal and like they know each other, which is already kind of funny. Where like they haven't seen each other, but they know the other one is the other, you know, and they hug a, a really like, you know, loving, like brotherly almost embrace. And she's standing there. I mean, she's like, what's going on? <laughs> Yeah, I always imagine being like, "What's happening?" I I love the expressions on her face when she's like, "Why are you guys looking at each other? Like, who is this? What's going on?" And she <laughs> she she does that that those expressions that was like the meme face for the you know when you're thinking about what someone's saying at their Oscar speech. <laughs> yeah, she looks. I mean, she does look confused. I just always imagine like your inner thoughts, like, "What's going on?" Because I mean, yeah, they act like they're like two brothers who are reunited after like not seen her for like 20 years or something it's it always makes me laugh just her whole reaction to that whole thing because she has no idea what's going on but um i mean yeah it all it you know it all works out i i want to ask you a question i don't wish you even get into this or not the, the, the eternal debate about Is this a christmas Hard. movie uh-huh you know, I, I was gonna ask you that question <laughs> um so i've always had the same answer and i know that uh, not that long ago, Bruce Willis came out and said it wasn't. And it's like, my attitude is, if you want it to be a Christmas film, it is. And if you don't, it isn't. I love it. I think it is a Christmas movie. And I tend to always watch it around Christmas, mostly because it's usually on at Christmas, whether I want to or not. <laughs> That's true. Well, it's funny because you and I have very similar answers to that question, because I've kind of for a long time, I really fought it, and I was like, it's a Christmas movie. It's a, it, I was, like, really adamant. Now I'm just like, listen, if you want it to be one, it is one. If you don't want it to be one, that's fine for you. For me, it is For me, it is definitely a Christmas movie. It always has been a Christmas movie. Um, I do know it came out in the summer of 88, but, like, you know, it's I, they play it around Christmas. It's got Christmas songs in it. It's got all those Christmas references. Um, it is, to me, it is a Christmas movie through and through. Um, and of course, Christmas won't. It, people say it doesn't feel like a Christmas movie. It's like, well, they're in L.A. I imagine Christmas feels a little weird and different. There's no snow, obviously. Uh, so it's like, you know, it feels a little weird out there. I thought it's part of the the appeal or that, you know, that's like part of the aesthetic is like an L.A. Christmas would be like wouldn't feel very Christmassy, basically. Um, yeah, but yeah but I've also, always, if yeah. you come from a, if you live in a country that it doesn't really snow anyway, that doesn't really bother you. That's like true. this is this yeah. is uh, you know there's these little things that uh, people forget and you know like you said they always play at Christmas and it's the ongoing legacy of the film that I think has defined it for a very long time as a Christmas film and then people argue it because like you say it doesn't feel like Christmas it's not really a Christmas story but as you said the fact that it is set at Christmas time and it is a Christmas miracle 
you know, both <laughs> both Hans and McLean use the Christmas theme uh, throughout the film, and it literally ends with "Let It Snow." And it, <laughs> yeah. it might not to be a traditional Christmas film, but if you like me, grew up in a house with people that like action films. It's going to be played at Christmas, so it's a Christmas film. <laughs> <laughs> now, the real question is, do you watch it outside of Christmas time? Uh, funnily enough, not <laughs> really. Um, I don't really rewatch it at any other point now unless I want to show it to someone who hasn't seen it. But even then, the funny thing is, is the second I kind of mention it, we almost end up waiting for it to be christmas or it is christmas because that's what's made me think about it yeah and the same and the same applies for die hard 2 but not with a vengeance uh which is funny because as a result of which i genuinely think with a vengeance is the one i have rewatched the least because it doesn't have that christmas pull to make me go it's time to rewatch it oh okay yeah that's interesting i uh it's funny because i i think when i was younger i might have watched Die Hard with a Vengeance more than any of the other ones because, again, it was like an HBO movie. They just played all the time, and I was super into it. And for a while, I know I saw that one more than the original Die Hard. Now it has changed, but um, yeah, it is funny that they take out the Christmas element. And I mean, you could take some of the Christmas stuff out of the original Die Hard. I don't want you to. I'm just saying, like, you could, and it would still be like, it would still be an amazing action movie. You could just say it was like there was an office party or you guys had there was some kind of office meeting or something. You could make something up and and take out a couple of the references and drop the songs. But um, it'd still be an amazing action movie. But yeah, I, I keep it at Christmas only. I I will like watch a little bit of it's on. It's, it's not really on much outside of Christmas anymore. Um, I feel like. But um, yeah, I can well, watch uh... it whenever. Yeah. I think some of that has to do with the fact that the film is like approaching 40 years old. Um, oh, God. I, I hate to say that, <laughs> but uh, you had you know. to say it out loud. Now I feel, <laughs> you know, so, so old. Uh, <laughs> but that's the thing. Um, whenever I rewatch Die Hard, it's always funny because like so many films of its day, if uh, John McClane had a mobile phone, this film would have half the running time. It's true. Yeah. This is true. I oh another thing that bothers me. Sorry, I'm just remembering stuff now. When he calls that, well, he's on the radio, and then the people <laughs> they get on that line and they're like, "Sir, this reserved for emergencies only." And like the weird stubbornness to not believe that this is genuinely an emergency and it's a prank call. And I'm like, what's wrong with these people that they wouldn't believe that? Uh, you know, I love. He's like, it's like I'm ordering a fucking pizza here. <laughs> like, I just think it's so. That's a real trope of movies that people like just for almost no reason just won't believe that someone's telling the truth and you know has an actual emergency and like they don't even take him seriously till they hear machine gun fire and they're like okay send a car down there but it always bothers me that they just like refuse to listen to him <laughs> well the problem is and you might not know this you might know this listeners will but not anymore but i spent a very long time working in uh the healthcare system here in the uk so I, i've worked in three different hospitals and I I don't struggle to believe that a dispatcher would be that way and I and I and I've met people that are just like I I don't care that the patient's lying in the bed dying you didn't fill out this paperwork um and they're very difficult to deal with so oh, okay. <laughs> I I've, I I hate the fact that those people are out there but they definitely are um and uh you know the fact that it's quite clearly the supervisor that comes on and is like 
this is an emergency channel. What she's basically saying is this is our channel that we use to communicate with the police. So right. go away. <laughs> off of it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I love the way she's like, if you have a gen, a genuine emergency, hang up, uh, you know, ring 911. And it's like, yes, if I could do that, I would. <laughs> like, this is the point I'm trying to convey to you. And I, I genuinely do feel that because I think we've all had those phone calls where the person whose job it is, is to listen and help you. And all they seem to do is frustrate and avoid you. It's like they do everything in their power to do what they're legally supposed to, but make sure that in reality, you get nowhere. Yeah, okay. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. But yeah, that's uh, um, that makes sense why they would just be like, okay, sir, great, get off the line. <laughs> plus, we don't care. Plus, yeah. the entire police force is basically shown to be terrible. Um, you know, every sure. single yeah. <laughs> police character except for Powell is useless. So I think the dispatchers were kind of like your first clue that when the police arrived, it was not going to be the end of John McClane. Uh, because if it had been, obviously, that would have been, you know, the film sort of goes, right, well, now it's just a tense hostage negotiation situation. Whereas instead, it's, wow, these guys just are completely unprepared. John's going to have to get back onto his uh, feet, quite literally, and still get involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, um, I want to bring something else. You, you mentioned this person earlier, very briefly, and Hart Bachner as Ellis such a great slimy character and i always say that he he feels like cocaine took a human form like i feel like he's like the human embodiment of cocaine in this movie like i even as a kid when i barely knew what was going on i was like that guy's on some stuff like that guy is like that guy is a sleazy slime ball who is high off his ass on cocaine <laughs> and and ends up getting killed for how freaking cocky and you know like slimy he is but he's he's fantastic i just had him i had my notes to mention him but um you brought him up a little bit earlier but oh my god he's so good in this yeah i mean he is really good and he serves a purpose of you know i think that a he is kind of like he thinks he's going to be holly's next romantic interest which reality oh, i don't think sure. that was ever going to happen yeah. <laughs> um, but also he's the idiot to begin with. And then once he's like collected himself and he thinks he can talk his way out of the situation, I also think that he, his character, his death at the time it happens is right after John has taken out the RPGs. I think that we're trying to take out the APC mm -hmm. And so John keeps winning, but now it's like the other way around and John can't save Ellis no matter what he does because Ellis is an idiot that doesn't understand what he's gotten himself in for. And by saying that he's his friend, he's pretty much guaranteed that he's going to get shot because, you know, he's pissing them off. And right. uh, <laughs> I think that by having a character like Ellis that they can kill, it kind of resets in people's brains. Yeah, John might be winning, but he hasn't won. And it's like Hans and Carl and the, their gang are still dangerous. They are. I think in some action films, 
and some some actors suffer with this more than others it's like you know within the first 20 minutes that the bad guy is no threat to the hero because the hero is such a badass that he can't be stopped and everyone's going to be fine because this guy's here now but this was a sequence that said John McClane might be getting on my nerves and he has my detonators, but I could kill the hostages at any minute and I will. And it's like, oh, yeah, I kind of still need to be scared, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's like he's he's always a threat. And I guess also goes back to holding up Bruce Bolas, like not being your typical action hero. Like that's it was it's hard sometimes like be worried for guys like Schwarzenegger when they're up against anybody because you're like couldn't he just like punch that guy's head off you know it's like well it's hard to find matches for him yeah the thing is as well is i've never been i, I i've never looked at you know schwarzenegger is a, a massive in certain films he's a massive physical presence but mm. he isn't actually that hard to match in height because he's not like stupidly tall he's big well, don't yeah. get me wrong but he's not massive but also he, you know, Schwarzenegger and Stallone, they're not uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. They're not Steven Seagal. They're not the martial art guys that would kind of come up uh, alongside and then after them. And I feel like Schwarzenegger and Stallone, even if they had been in this movie, they could have found a way to make it work. I don't know if it would have done as well, but I think they could have done it. Maybe more so Stallone than Schwarzenegger, because Schwarzenegger was still quite bulky in the late 80s. But right, right. if it had been, and I, and you know, he, this is a this is kind of an obvious target, but I'm going to use him. But there are other people. If this had been Steven Seagal, for example, there would have been no tension whatsoever because he <laughs> would have just uh, swung his arms around and everyone would have just fallen over, no matter what happened. <laughs> no one would have died. He'd have caught the bullets with his hands. He'd have yep. you know jumped out and stopped those eight rockets, and he'd have jumped down and led the LAPD in <laughs> himself and told them all to take five because he's got this and no one would have cared. <laughs> yeah, I'm always surprised when I ever watch a Seagal movie and he allows himself to be hurt at all. I'm like, oh, wow, like I can't believe he allowed himself to bleed a little bit or something that you got. to. It's funny. Yeah, he would be too. He's too full of himself to allow that. And I was going to say, I could see all those guys running around in Die Hard. Like, in my mind, I can picture, like, plopping them into Bruce Willis. And I was like, of course I can picture Van Damme doing it, because Van Damme did his own Die yeah. Hard with sudden death. <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> Die Hard in a hockey rig. Like, um, I just well, talked about my show not too long ago, yeah. To be <laughs> fair, you could argue that so did uh, Seagal with Under Siege on a boat. Well, oh, yeah, that's true. That is that's exactly right. It's Die Hard on a... And it's exactly ship. how I described it. <laughs> it's exactly, yeah. He's never... God, I, yeah, he takes, like... Like, did he take any damage in that movie? I feel like he just goes through and just plows through everybody. It's like Bruce Willis, like I said, he's getting hurt. But like, I don't remember Seagal even getting hurt in Under Siege. It's like he just, and of I, course they make him the biggest badass of all time. They find his record. It's like, oh my God, he did this and this and this. It's well, like, exactly. That's that's the defining difference right there is in that he was a former Navy SEAL that was just so badass. He had to retire and become a chef because action <laughs> was so boring for him now. He needed a real challenge. <laughs> Whereas John McClane is just a cop, and a, and it's not a negative, but it like it sets realistic expectations. The other cops that are equally as trained in theory, or even better, in the case of like the SWAT team, they don't win 
dead on one on one against the terrorists and oh well they're not terrorists but that's what they're called throughout the film and McLean only wins because for a good portion of the film they don't even know he's there and when he right, does yeah. engage uh it's always uh sneak attacks it's guerrilla warfare i mean the very first person that dies Carl's brother kind of dies by accident you know he snaps his neck when they both fall down a staircase it could have easily been John that died i was i thought that yeah it could have easily gone the other way but he kind of got lucky that uh that he broke his neck but then he gets a great line about like all the terrorists in the world and i gotta get the ones uh, feet smaller than my sister <laughs> like, yeah exactly i mean um, there's there's they make sure to keep you know him without shoes he's always <laughs> he's always the underdog you know they never give him an advantage even when he gets like um a machine gun it doesn't really even the odds he doesn't really kill anyone for a long point after that even when he has a gunfight with Carl on the roof, um, he's basically just running. He's trying to escape. He's trying to flee. Whenever he reloads, it's in panic because, you know, he doesn't use a machine gun every day for his living. He's not like dropping, you know, John Matrix in from Commando that could have blown them all away with a few one-liners. <laughs> um, and the fact that he does spend so much time of the film just hiding and running and... Uh, when he does get kills, they feel that much more impactful and earned because you've seen how much he struggled just to live, never mind win. Yeah, yes, that's a great point. Like he does, it feels like his back's always up against the wall. He's definitely an underdog. Like it, him getting a kill is an accomplishment. You know, in some movies, it's like, like Commando, like a great example. Like he's just mowing people down at the end. Like it's like you know, it's like but but in Die Hard, he's really working for these kills, and it's like usually. It's when his back is, I think, up against the wall, and it's a desperate. There's a desperation there, and there's a lot of like he is running a lot because he knows he's outnumbered. Uh, I was thinking of the, the really desperate scene when he's running from Carl and a couple other guys. He's on the roof, and he goes to that fan that he he managed to jam the fan up and get yeah. through. Yeah, and they can't get through. He's that's yeah, what I was like talking a, about. <laughs> like a scared animal, you know. It's like he's scurrying for his life. Like he is, he's barely escaping from these guys. Um. And not facing them head on when he doesn't have to, because he knows that would be really stupid. <laughs> like, well, the, that's a real bad idea. Yeah. The, the thing is, as well, is they do it very uh, smart because they show you him doing research on them. He writes their names down on his arm. He spies on them at the top of the elevator, um, which is a scene I always chuckle at because they all speak German. But then when they need to deliver lines of dialogue that the audience needs to hear, they just decide to switch to English and then go back to German. Um <laughs> which I've never quite understood. But um, when he first starts killing people, he doesn't actually want to kill people. At the first person that runs into the room and he catches him, he tells him to put the gun down and he does it like a police officer. It's like, put the gun down and get on the floor. But then Matey tries to shoot him and then they have their exchange. And then he stood on the table and he says, you know, take my advice, pal. The next time you have a chance to kill someone, you should just do it. And then McLean just fires his gun through the table and kills him and he's like thanks for the advice and he then starts shooting at people properly and it's like as the film goes on he gets more and more happy to get into gunfights because he's building up to to it you know he's built he's he's had quite a few by the end of the film and um but even when he gets uh ambushed by carl and his men when hans is pretending to be the american and he calls them in on the radio he still runs because trying to take on Hans and Carl at the same time is suicide. And he knows that. 
That's why he drags himself away, even though he, you know, his feet get absolutely peppered with glass. And they show mm. you the aftermath of that, the realistic aftermath of glass, because glass is not something you just laugh away. That that is very, very painful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh I I just think it's a it shows you how he is in a he's got a completely different state of mind about how to deal with the situation by the time he gets to the end where he tapes a gun to his back compared to the guy that started the film by running into the top floor and pulling the fire alarm and going this is you guys's problem i'm gonna sit this one out yeah i mean he's really by the end i feel like he's been through so much almost like he's in this kind of crazed survival mode and uh but I mean, yeah, the point he's just I, I also was trying to save his wife at that point before, you know, his wife's not she's in danger, but she is not like the ho- the one hostage directly in danger with Hans. Like they're all in danger. So it's like that adds another thing to him, too, where it's like, OK, now my wife's life is directly, you know, in in danger here. And he has her. And uh, yeah, at that point, I feel like he's just seen so much shit that he's just like. I do feel like Carter was like, I just want to, I just want to finish this and go home. You know, it's like get my wife back and get out of here. Um, it's a good plan because he has, there's not much left for him at that point. It's like he puts, just using tape on his back. Like it's like he's just, you know, he's just making it up as he goes along. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's man, sorry, we're talking. I'm just like this movie's so great. That's all I keep thinking. I'm like, this is a great movie. Um, and and also it's so it, good. it leads to. What I think now is a well-known story, but I, th- you know, for a long time it wasn't. Which is the the Alan Rickman, you know, when Hans drops off of the oh, the building, yes. <laughs> and uh-huh. that look of surprise on his face is real because the person who was going to give him a countdown dropped him at two instead of three because that way he could react for real, not try to act it. Which I think is just very mean, but also brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, he looks genuinely surprised, so it it paid off. It worked. Uh... I do love that story, though. Yeah, like they just dropped him on two. And that look is I appreciate that. It's a genuine look of surprise because it, it's a very memorable face. I feel like as a kid, I really it was like burning in my brain the like look of him uh, falling. His yeah. look on his face when he's falling. Yeah. Um, great bad guy death. It's one of the all time great bad guy deaths. <laughs> well, I also got to say, like something this film is really good at as well. Like you were saying, Jones use of the camera. McTiernan, not McLean. And uh, <laughs> they Every time they show you how high the Nakatomi building is, uh, how how far down the elevator shaft is, the air vents are, it's a, it it still makes me feel anxious seeing him jump off of it, jump over it, whatever it might be. And it's the same in that moment. It's like this is a huge building and just being on the roof would be dangerous with those high winds you know it's just oh yeah it's so anxiety inducing if you really buy into it and at no point does the film take me out of it by having ropey shots of like green screened in you know heights and i think they just do so well to make the building feel claustrophobic but make the building also feel massive which is not the easiest thing to do <laughs> yeah that's true it's a great location uh and they use the building really well i, I was, there's not much green screen in this right i mean i was watching this i'm thinking this, most of this is practical there's a lot of model work i believe uh yeah like when they blow things up on the tower because obviously they want to like blow up uh parts of the building <laughs> but uh that's you know i hate i don't all the time i talk my show i talk about this about like I don't want to be like the old man yelling into the cloud, but like I, I do really appreciate practical effects these days because, yeah, if they made this now, 
like so much it would be green screen or if they'd done the green screen even in 88 more kind of fake stuff it would not hold up as well but they do so little of it cough that... skyscraper cough <laughs> man a movie i i almost forgot about um it's like, <laughs> i saw that in a theater uh for some reason <laughs> but um but yeah i mean if they'd done kind of dodgy stuff then it wouldn't have held up as well but because they try to do it practically as much as they can kind of helps the movie still feel more timeless than it would if they had i i yeah i love they did so much of like actual explosions actual model work all this kind of stuff because it looks great it's a great looking movie Jan Bond, who was the cinematographer amazing job in this movie because it always even as a kid before i knew any about movies i thought man die hard just looks better than a lot of movies it looks so cool <laughs> It does. It does. And I think when people go back, and in our case, rewatch, but for some people, maybe they're watching it for the first time. If if they've only got a modern action film to compare to, and that's not a negative. I enjoy a lot of modern action films, but the fact that it is basically all practical effects, they're real explosions, there's real debris flying around, there's practical blood, which is becoming rarer and rarer when people get oh, shot. Yeah. And, you know, they don't shy away from showing you the the damage that they do to each other. Uh, it, there's some exaggeration, especially in the, like, hand-to-hand fight between uh, Carl and McLean. But for the most part, compared to pretty much anything done nowadays, it feels real because, whilst it's not real, obviously, the effects were. Like, there's actual makeup on people's faces. There's actual blood drenched onto someone's vest. Nothing takes me out of something faster than a CGI bloodstain that's trying to look like it's actually there because even now I still feel like it doesn't work. It it kind of works if you're just going to do like a blood squib, but if you're trying to make like blood look like it's soaked into clothing, for the love of God, just actually put it on the clothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not a fan of the fake blood either. It just never looks right and like I get why the industry has kind of moved away from like using squibs as much because they can be tough to work with. I know they can kind of hurt people and, you know, they're not pleasant, I think, to wear. Uh, it's like, I'm sure it's easier to do digital kind of like gunshot effects, but like, yeah, there's just something that you cannot replicate about like the squibs give a real feel, like the blood you said, you got to use practical blood. Like, yeah, I'm with you. Like the move to digital, I get, and it's probably easier, especially for like, you know, we both like a lot of these like DTV action movies, smaller action movies, like they got to do it for cost and time stuff. Right. You know, it's like it's just easier for them. So um, the other thing, yeah, I sorry, go mm-hmm. on. Oh, see, I just I miss those days of like squibs and practical blood and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you, you were saying about a modern DTV film, there's one that came out fairly recently that I actually did genuinely enjoy. And I'm not sure I want to name it because I don't want to don't want people to think I'm saying it's bad because it's not. But. They had a lot of CGI blood squibs, of CGI blood, and they also CGI'd in, like, sword and knife slashes across the bodies, and that's fine, but if you're going to do that, you need continuity of those injuries, because the problem I had with that film is the next frame, never mind the next scene, the injuries that they just CGI'd onto them were gone. There was no blood on the clothing there was no mark where the cut was it was just like it never happened and it's like you you might say well you know it's budget but it it, that couldn't take regular people out of a movie so fast that they might just not bother 
yeah yeah i know it can it can take me out of it sometimes i'm, I'm with you it's like I, I try to give him a lot of leeway because i just know how tough it is to make a movie anyway but i'm just like i see that kind of thing sometimes and i'm like oh i wish you guys hadn't done that because i don't like the way it looks but um you know i guess it is what it is i don't know but i i, I agree with you 100 like i i don't like when it's like when it disappears like that it's like that just takes you out of the the movie even the most of the movie's good it's like you know that part's like oh i just wish that wasn't like that you know that kind of thing yeah so i i get it yeah so uh i'm curious because you've been asking me a lot of questions which is nice actually when did you first watch this film and i i could i can guess the answer to this question but what was your do you remember <laughs> what your reaction was to it oh i don't know i was pretty young i it feels like a movie that just kind of played in the background a lot of my early life and i didn't pay it i can tell you when i feel like i really paid it the most attention was at my uncle's house at thanksgiving that's probably like 11 or 12 and i feel like i finally sat down and watched it uncut because i think i'd only seen it like cut on cable probably too and because he had like a giant like tv setup he had this amazing setup in like his office room i was like that was like where I was staying on the trip, basically. And I was like in heaven because he had this awesome like TV sound system set up and he had all the movie channels. And I was like, I don't ever want to leave this place. And I remember like I put Die Hard on and I was like, oh, I can finally watch Die Hard like from start to finish uncut on like HBO or Cinemax, something like that. And uh, I remember just being like, oh, this movie's great. I remember I got other people to come in and watch it with me, like other family members. I, they were like, oh, shit, Die Hard song. And I was like, yeah, get in here. <laughs> I was like, and that was like, if I'd seen it before, that was the magical viewing where it was like, oh, I love this movie. Um, and it was such a fun, great experience. It was like, I was like, this movie's just awesome. <laughs> like, and that was the time I was probably getting more into movies overall in general, like 11, 12 ish, uh, anyway. And so it was a great, that's how I like to think my first viewing was of this movie. And then I, I rewatched it so many times I, I've, I've seen it in a theater at least once maybe twice uh i you can watch it anytime that it's on like um yeah i can't i've seen it probably more than almost any other movie it's probably in the top five like re-watched movies for me of all time honestly that's fair um that's a pretty <laughs> good story too uh, i genuinely can't i i couldn't tell you how old i was i couldn't tell you like where I well I I know where I was but I I know I watched Die Hard for the first time with my dad and it's funny looking back because in the UK because obviously we have different um categorizations for age ratings than, oh, right. than yeah. you guys do <laughs> and uh, I I just literally had to look it up to make sure I I wasn't imagining this but um Die Hard is our highest age rated which is 18 so in theory you have to be over 18 to see the film uh, I was not 18, but I can tell you that much. Um, <laughs> uh -huh. I, 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 I was young, but I, I also know, and I find this interesting, I actually have what the BBFC uh, said about the film. And it's interesting how they actually noted that much is left to the imagination. Bruce Willis diffuses much of the violence with his persona, and there are close-up shots of injury <laughs> details but we recognize that these do not revel in sadism for the sake of it. And I just love <laughs> what action films revel in sadism. I do love the way they phrase that. And uh, <laughs> they've basically just written that the film avoids the selling of brutality 
and that you know they don't actually like dwell on the violence and but mm-hmm. yet they still gave it an 18 and it's like there are other <laughs> yeah. well to be fair they gave it an 18 because they didn't need to make any cuts whereas like say commando uh was cut down significantly for the uk even though it still had an 18 rating um which uh, i finally saw it uncut like a few years ago and it may it didn't make a big difference but it it was very noticeable because it was basically all the bloody and gory kills that he does at the end were cut out oh and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and it was like oh this is kind of better but you know but, um <laughs> In 2008, they actually resubmitted it, like, officially, and now they've put it down to a 15 and basically said, yeah, man, we agree with the original uh, stuff that they said, you know, back in the 80s, but I really don't think this is an 18. Like, the viol- there's lots of violence, but they don't dwell on the infliction of pain or injury, is is the quote. And now it's <laughs> a, it's been a 15 ever since, including when it got a theatrical re-release in 2013, for whatever reason. That's very interesting. I didn't know any of that because I, you know, it's an it's an R over here, and that's the language. First of all, would get it an R rating, which is like seven. You have to be seventeen enough to see an R. Um, the violence. I've always thought like this is an easy one to cut down for cable, though, because the violence is not super graphic. Maybe I'm desensitized um, to violence, but it's I've seen many more graphic uh action movies and they don't linger that's that is a, a, actually a good point i'm thinking of like and the what's the the sadism yeah because i'm thinking of like top of my head um a super violent action movie the night comes for us obviously much more recent movie <laughs> great which movie. does seem i think kind of revel in the sadism but i love that movie but it's like that movie hurts the violence hurts in that movie and um yeah die hard is a cleaner i would say you know type thing I, I there's movies like the matrix is rated r over here and an eight or 17 plus over here and i always thought why is that movie rated that high because there's like barely any language there's no sex there's no nudity um there is violence but it's not super bloody or graphic and like die hard's a probably a step above that but in america like violence usually you know you can get away with a lot of violence in your movie and and get a lower rating the sex the sex nudity and language is where you'll get in trouble get a higher rating but the violence like you know you can usually get away with that so i'm always a little surprised but um you know just a yippee motherfucker that's gonna get you an r rating over here so. yeah well with the um with the, the the kind of i say a random shot but with the random shot of the uh, the half naked ladies and her top half uncovered, not also automatically get you that R rating. That's true. They could. It's funny on TV they fuzz that over, kind of. They kind of blur it a little bit. Yeah, you. I mean, I'm assuming if they wanted a P13, I don't think they wanted one. They probably wanted R. They could have easily just some done something with that, or maybe. Well, they can't really cut it because it's kind of reporting. It's just like you have to touch the poster. Yeah, that might that might have gotten it. I don't know. But then Titanic over here has a scene where uh, Kate Winslet is like fully naked and got a lower rating and didn't get an R rating over here, which I've always was shocked by because I thought nudity was like almost automatic. Ah, uh, yeah, you know. but n- nudity is fine if you do it in an artsy way. Then, then <laughs> it's okay. If you're being painted, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. I then mean, it's the rating fine. system is a friggin' mess over here. Probably it's probably the same over where you guys are, but like our rating system is like such a weird political thing too. like, you know, c- certain movies can get more leeway if they're from a bigger studio than independent movies. 
like um they're really hard on sex and nudity over here but like i said violence you can get away with um it's very weird i don't <laughs> i don't know how it all works but so um, for for yeah. comparison like i looked up the matrix and the matrix was rated a 15 which is now what die hard is also rated but right. okay, in, yeah. <laughs> in 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 my opinion the way i always remember thinking about it is most of the stuff that you guys rate as hard R is a 15 over here. Um, mm-hmm. 18s, and to be honest, I, I don't really see 18s as much as I used to, because 18s would be something like Robocop, where it's freaking <laughs> gory. Yeah. Or, or it would be something that where, like, Predator 2, where there's, like, actual uh, <laughs> porno actresses uh, going at it for a scene, and it's <laughs> and it's all there to see. Like, that's what would get you in 18. Like, it's got to be vicious or it's got to be, like, in your face. Everything mm-hmm. else pretty much seems to become a 15. But the, the the waters got muddied because under a 15 is a 12, as in you need to be 12. Um, And that one used to be, like, that was where most teenage films lived. The problem mm-hmm. with was is that in 2001, a film called Spider-Man was made. and they were going to rate it a 12 and the country went uh excuse me spider-man is a kid's thing do not rate it a 12 because i have to live with my kids that will scream bloody murder if they can't (laughs) go and see spider-man and i will say that when spider-man came out or close to when it came out i was 11 and i was very very pissed off at the idea that because i'm a few months away from being 12 i can't go and see spider-man and uh that's when they created 12a which was basically we think this film is for 12 year olds but if you go in with a child that's younger as in 12 adult then you can take in a kid of any age because you can basically decide yeah your kid's mature enough which at the time great we're gonna go see spider-man now that's kind of used as like uh we don't really have to worry because parents are just gonna overrule us anyway so every mcu film pretty much is a 12a which means when you go to the cinema there are two-year-old toddlers wandering around because you know it's two hours with the parents don't have to parent and it drives me mad (laughs) (laughs) very interesting your racism sounds a little more complex than ours because just straight up g g P13 and R and there is an NC17 but like nobody gets that because then it's just no children are 17 allowed and nobody wants that um so yeah you have like the, the in between the 15 and the 12 and the 12A and um well the funny I, thing is is that 12 got retired uh no one oh, ever, okay <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't uh-huh. supposed to be um but i because they realized how much more money a 12A could make uh i think after that 12 just became an irrelevant Oh, okay. Do you have something below the 12 rating? Or is it just yes. at that point, it's like... No, no, no. Oh. There's a there's a PG <laughs> and a U. Oh, okay. U means... <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think they really get that used that much anymore. Especially not PG. Well, uh, anyway. U used <laughs> to mean, and it still does mean, universal. Anyone can watch this. There is nothing that's going to upset anyone or be age inappropriate. PG mean, meant... We think that there might be stuff in this that could be upsetting for kids or something triggering, dramatic, but 
it's up to you to decide first. It's up to parental guidance. And that is what 12A has kind of turned into, which has made you and PG kind of pointless. Ah, okay. Because I, I can remember there's a critic that talks about this a lot, where it's like a lot of films that were made in like the 80s and the 70s that were classed as PG, which nowadays is looked on as like, oh, it's a kid's film. No, <laughs> you you can't just assume that because it says PG, if it was an old film, it's like, you need to watch that before you just let your kid watch it because Watership Down is like a PG and that film is not for kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we used to not have anything between PG and R. There's this huge gap, basically. And there's PG movies from 80s and before that have you know full nudity in them and all kinds of stuff because there was just it was weird like the, there was more leeway it was very strange and then like spielberg comes along and makes temple of doom and some other things came up but like apparently that's what pushed to the pg-13 in between rating because they needed something that was like okay it's not quite r but oh, it's God. too it's too much for kids um and no Sorry. one uses like oh go ahead yeah. I, I have to interrupt you because yeah. i suddenly thought i'm saying it was a pg it wasn't a PG. They made they they rated Watership Down as a U. It was universal. Anyone oh, can watch it. <laughs> I, I screenshots of that that are traumatic. You did that for everybody. Oh my <laughs> god. Like, oh my god. Yeah. I it's and G never gets used over here. That's like a general same thing as Universal. It's like I think I've heard studios avoid the G because like G is like for movies for like toddlers. It's like yes. they don't want you know it's it's almost too babyish. Like so even like. Any animated movie seems to get a PG, at, at, you know, because they it's it's like it's like it's like for little kids, but not like babies. You know, it's very, it's very I, the racism is fascinating to me. And to hear about yours is even more fascinating because I know hardly anything about your rating system or how it works. But um, well, see, the funny thing is, is I had a very different experience. I've discovered to a lot of people my age, because when I was a kid um, and my my wife uh, grew up in the same place as me, but she apparently I don't know, maybe she just got lucky. but. I remember trying to get into any cinema for anything that I wasn't old enough for was an absolute nightmare because they take it very seriously over here. Like, if you're under 12, back when I was under 12, you weren't seeing a 12. And no. 15 and 18? <laughs> no. <laughs> and then I hear, like, a lot of Americans uh, that are a few years older than me, so they were going to the cinema earlier than me, and they're like, Oh yeah, my dad took me to see Bloodsport and you know, we went to see Commando and Predator and I'm like, "How?" And then, "Oh, you you your cinemas are very different." Like I can I I can remember Expendables 2. It was a 15, and I know this because I was in Wales at the time with my ex and her younger siblings were not 15. If one of you guys that worked in that cinema was listening, I'm apologizing now, but they genuinely <laughs> wanted to see their passports to prove that they were oh, over 15. <laughs> and I, I, I got them in because I kind of flipped out a bit because I was like, are you kidding me? But it was just like, that's how strict some of those star cinemas are. It's just stupid. That's crazy. Yeah, because like we have the PG-13, but I don't think it's ever been enforced where I've never, I, there, no one's ever been like, hey, you're 11, you can't come to this PG-13 movie. It's supposed to be parental guidance for people under 13, no one stops anybody. And you can go into an R if you're with a, a parent or something. And like, I snuck into a, a few R-rated movies by myself, um, which you could get stopped for. They might stop you. But like, most people at theaters just don't care that much over here. They're just like, eh, it's like, 
I don't get paid much. Go ahead. <laughs> like, so that is it. They're like, wow, they're really serious over there. It sounds like. Well, I think, I think, and this is definitely an I think, do not quote me on this, people listening. The regulatory board is the BBFC, which I'm pretty sure is like British Broadcasting Federation certification, which would have been, which is probably related to the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. And I think the problem is, is back then, because again, they are also the people that make us pay to have a TV license to even own a television and oh. watch it. Uh, <laughs> and they do go out and check, like they allegedly have vans everywhere. Um, I'm 99% confident that the reason it was so heavily enforced is because they would send people to check. And if they found that you let, say, an underage person in to see something that might traumatize them and that got out, that's your cinema closed. Oh, okay. Well, that makes more sense. I figured they had to be really enforcing that for anybody to care that much. Like, well, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I can remember being asked my age multiple times when I would be taken in with my dad and my granddad. And this was only for like, I don't know, the latest. I, I can't even give you an example, but I, I remember being asked on multiple occasions and it was like, I didn't have to worry because, you know, it was fine. But it was just like when people say, you know, oh, I took my kid to, to see an R-rated movie and I'm like, no, that wasn't an option. I mean, I'm sure there were staff and cinemas out there that didn't care, but the ones that I went to where I grew up, no, they cared. And it didn't matter if you were with an adult. They were like, what year were you born in? Like, just ask you off the cuff so that you couldn't be prepared, you know? <laughs> right, right. Man, oh, that's does not sound fun. I, uh, some of my fondest memories are getting snuck into R-rated movies as a little kid. <laughs> so um, Starship Troopers was like, I think, maybe the first one I got taken to. And holy shit, that's an experience when you're like 10. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, yeah. I'm pretty sure I watched it around about then as well. Uh, but it would have been when it came out on VHS. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's good times though. It was good times. <laughs> so... Anyway, oh. back in the land of Die Hard. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, I I genuinely think we might have uh, exhausted the the conversation, but I just wanted to say, <laughs> did did you have any particular scene that you wanted to talk about, or anything that you felt? that we haven't covered yet or are, are you feeling like uh we were talking about uh film ratings so maybe we're done <laughs> no no i find that very fascinating um i i just I, my last note was actually about i think hart Faulkner being the human embodiment of cocaine so i got that in so that that's good and uh yeah I, it's funny because it you know i threw die hard out to you and a few other things and then we, we said die hard and i in the back of my mind i did think like oh shit can we is there enough like die hard so famous and so popular and so beloved and like was there could we talk about it and i think we did a pretty good job like i think there's like i knew there'd be stuff to talk about but it's almost like when a movie is this well known and this you know popular it's almost like what do you say about it but i i you know i think we did a good job i don't have any other notes um I, my it's and it's hard to pick a favorite scene because i love the movie so much it's one of my favorite movies of all time honestly and I it's almost like every time I watch it, there's some new little thing that pops more than before. Like, I know this time I laughed really hard about like I mentioned with the line about when Bruce Willis like glass because a fuck about glass. <laughs> like, I don't know why it just really <laughs> it really cracked me up his delivery at the time because he just sounds so like outraged at the guy bringing up the fucking glass and he's just like glass like um so there's always something 
oh, you know, the one thing we didn't mention, the joke that I still love, the Johnson & Johnson FBI agents mm. is still great. Like, what a... Funnily um, enough, I was just going to gonna mention the FBI agents um, <laughs> because they also have... We, we, we said that the LAPD does not get represented particularly positively, but that is extended to the FBI. The FBI is everything that the LAPD does wrong, but times 10. And uh, <laughs> yeah. they, they come in with a heavy sledgehammer approach to everything. They follow the rule book, allegedly, and then they basically go back on their word. And I love the parallel where one of the Johnsons talks to Hans, and then once they get off the radio, Johnson's like, yeah, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to blow the roof and shoot everybody, and the, you know they'll never see it coming. And then it cuts to Hans, and he's like, yeah, well... We're not going to be on the roof because we're going to have already gone by there and we're going to blow it and they'll never know what happened. And it's like, I love how they play those scenes back to back where it's like one of these guys is supposed to be the good guy. One of these guys is supposed to be the bad guy. And here they are both being very, very similar to each other and both basically saying they're not going to follow through on their word. And the one caught in the middle is John McClane, the little guy trying to get it done. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fact that they then kind of, in my opinion, double down a little bit on the fact that the Johnsons are not exactly good guys in inverted commas is when they fly in on their attack helicopters and they're like, what about civilian casualties? And the other one's just like, what about them? Like they're, they're acceptable yeah. <laughs> losses. Right. And uh, then he like opens the door and he's like, this is just like Saigon, man. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, I kind of forget how shitty they are every time until they I'm like, oh, they're worse than I remember. And it's funny because I feel like a lot of times I've had the experience because they go up in the helicopter and they get killed in the blast. And it's almost it's not really it's, it's almost like, a, oh, shit, those guys just died. It's like, it's like a moment where they don't really address it too directly. Besides, um, Paul Gleason gets a great line about like, yes, we're going to need new FBI guys. Because <laughs> like, yeah. they just. Yeah. I'm like, oh shit, those guys died. Like it's just like one of those and, things where you're like, nobody oh, cares. And yeah, nobody cares. Perfect. <laughs> like because they were assholes. And they, yeah, they're they're talking about civilian casualties that they don't care. And I'm like, well, you know what? Fuck those guys. <laughs> so yeah, like um, they literally open fire on a roof that's mostly full of civilians just to kill one guy that they think is a terrorist. Right. Not they're not <laughs> they're not even trying to kill him because he's firing on the civilians. They're trying to kill him because they think he's made them. Like their their entire motivation for everything they do in the film is wrong and you can't even say oh they're doing the wrong thing for the right reasons or their their ends justify the means because everything about them is just we're basically doing this because we just want to kick some terrorist ass just like we did in nam right. man and i'm like and, I, and i'm sitting there going i think you remember vietnam very differently to everybody else right <laughs> yeah yeah but uh they, yeah that, that little thing is just great like yeah every little character that comes in memorable and has something memorable they do um yeah to me it's it's a perfect movie it's fantastic uh i don't know what to say about it i think i think i've said all i could say on it yeah i i agree the only thing i i, I want to sort of cap that bit off with is it it's i'm trying to think of years yeah it would have been it, it it clearly borrows from the Terminator school of how to write characters that you want people to sort of not cheer that they die, but you want to laugh when Paul Gleason says, oh, I guess we need new FBI guys. Because right. <laughs> they do the same thing in Terminator where James Cameron said, you know, 
we want you to kind of be cheering for the Terminator when he storms a police station and starts killing everyone. And we were really worried about that because it's like, we didn't know what the reaction was going to be, but actually everybody just got on the wavelength of the film straight away. And part of the reason why you feel that way is because we made sure that everybody that he's going to kill is very unhelpful. If anything, they're actually kind of assholes to the main character. And you like the main character, Sarah Connor. And they kind of do the same thing in this film, like you were saying. You don't like the dispatcher. The LAPD is kind of useless. The LAPD then gets obliterated, and you kind of go, oh, I kind of feel sorry for them now, because they've just been shot, they've been beaten up, and just as they start trying to come around to maybe Powell and McLean knew what they were talking about, here's the FBI. We're in charge now. And it's like, <laughs> oh my god, these guys are even worse. And then when they die, it's like... <laughs> Oh, I shouldn't have laughed at that. But uh, oh well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh well. Yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. Um, yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It's and now I'm just now I'm like you know like it's awesome. Die Hard's awesome. Like I know no one needs to tell me this or no one needs me to tell them that Die Hard is awesome. <laughs> so no, no. Um, and I and I also love the fact because uh, we were talking about it and then I think we we got away from it. But um, when Hans falls off the building. The fact that it's the uh, the Rolex that Ellis was uh, so insistent that John sees, uh, oh. to, and uh, that's what he uh, undoes and lets go of, and that's what gets uh, Hans killed and what saves Holly. It's like, let go of your Rolex watch, Holly. <laughs> <laughs> and Hans was chasing money, because a few people say, like, you're just a common thief. And it's like, yeah. oh, it's like, I'm an extraordinary thief. Like, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, it's... Uh... It's, yeah, I didn't think about that part. So there's always little stuff like that where I'm like, I didn't even think about that. So, um, yeah, and it can be a Christmas movie if you want it to be, and if not, it's not a Christmas movie. No reason to fight about it, people. <laughs> Whatever you want it to be. <laughs> and on that bombshell, thank you very much to Matthew for joining me on the show for taking the time out of his very busy schedule. It seemed. Uh, so I'm very happy that you were able to come on, and I this might be a bit of a longer episode. I'm not sure until I edit it, but. Either way, I hope you had fun coming on and we might be able to convince you to come back. Yeah, no, I had a blast. Thank you for uh, inviting me on, talking about a great movie. Uh, I'd love to come back. Uh, hopefully at some point, maybe have you on Film Feast. You can talk about something not action related if, you, if you'd like. So um, yeah, yeah this was a ton of fun. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, no, like I said, I'm always I'm always happy when I can have people on that maybe are coming at things from a different point of view uh, although in this case we both love die hard i'm happy about that i didn't want someone <laughs> yeah. that hated die hard but it's one of those things where it's like uh sometimes you get tunnel vision especially when you just talk about action films where it's like oh my god the action was amazing and other people are going yeah but the film was shit <laughs> all right there's more to this film than the action and i try not to do that anyway but sometimes it's refreshing so Thank you very much for coming on and confirming that Die Hard does indeed rock. <laughs> and with that, guys, I'm going to hand you back over to myself to tell you what's going to be happening next, which actually I might not be able to tell you because if this comes out at Christmas, I might not know. All right, guys, that's the end. As I said, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Take care of yourselves. Hope you're keeping well. Hope you're staying safe. And I shall see you in the next one. On the action